Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I want to say good morning to our Mill Creek campus and to those who are watching us by television, those who are watching online. Thanks for joining us, those of you here in our Sugarloaf campus. We live in an age, as you know, in which divorce is more common than ever before. People leave their spouses, sometimes for all kinds of reasons and sometimes for no reason. We even have this thing called no-fault divorce where nobody's at fault if they just get a divorce. Now, amazingly, I want to tell you something I came across. I'd never heard of this before. There's now such a thing called a starter marriage. I want you to hear this. There's a starter marriage. A starter marriage, listen to this. It is a short-lived first marriage between young adults viewed as a form of preparation for a significant, more lasting one with different partners. In other words, it's a marriage. It's kind of a let's check this out and see how we like it, what we don't, and then we'll split up and go find somebody else and see if it works with them. A recent study found that 43% of millennials supported this kind of marriage and that it allows couples to split up after about two years. 33% were open, listen to this, to marriage licenses. A marriage license in their mind is like a mortgage. So it's valid for a set period of time, and then when the mortgage is up, the marriage is up. Now, you, you, know, you, you think, what are we coming to? What, what are we going to have next? But I have to tell you, as a pastor, this really impacts me personally because I've not only seen the burden of the pain of divorce, I'm often the one who performed the marriage to begin with, and I've seen far too many marriages I perform not in well, and I'll be honest, every time I perform a wedding and then I find out down the road the marriage didn't make it, like I told you about at the beginning of this series, a marriage didn't even last a year. I lay awake at night and I have to ask myself questions. Is there a sign that I should have seen? Is there a question that I should have asked? Is there a concern that I could have raised? Is there anything I could have done? Because like it or not, the reason why I'm very picky on who I marry is because when I perform a wedding, I'm giving it my good housekeeping seal of approval. I'm saying, I believe you're going to have a wonderful, wonderful marriage. Now, it took me a little while, but I realized early in my ministry, and it kind of saved me a lot of heartache and pain, I realized there's just nothing I can do to prevent a divorce after the wedding. It doesn't matter how much counseling I give or how much counseling I encourage them to get or how much counseling they go through. It doesn't matter what I say at the wedding ceremony. It doesn't matter how I drill into them. This is till death do you part. I finally realized there's nothing I can do to prevent divorce after the wedding. But then I realized there was something I could do to help minimize it before the wedding. So that's why I began to require every couple that I marry go through premarital counseling. There are no exceptions and there are no excuses and there are no exemptions. If I'm going to do a wedding, you have to go through premarital counseling. If you refuse to do premarital counseling, then I just don't do the ceremony. We're in a series, if you're with us for the first time today, for, uh, just uh, out of the blue, we're in a series that we're calling Just the Three of Us. We've been talking about 
marriage and what marriage really is. And so I'm gonna kind of get summarize the series up to this point. We've said over and over, marriage is not a contract with a 30-day out. Marriage is a covenant. It's a horizontal covenant between a man and a woman, and it's a vertical covenant between a husband and a wife and God. Now, that said, I'm gonna say something. I know you already know. It's nothing brilliant. You probably never thought about it before. We were all born single. Now, let me just, maybe you never thought about that, but we were. And I'll tell you why I say that. It's really strange that when churches, and I've been guilty of this, when churches and pastors talk about family and they talk about marriage, you know what we always do? We leave out single people. We just kind of put them off to the side. I've done it before and it's a grave mistake. And the reason is that learning to live a single life, a successful single life in the eyes of God is really learning to live a married life the way God wants you to live it. What what the single life is, is just preparation for the married life because you know what you're gonna marry when you get married? Another single. So when you've got one single marrying another single, if they don't have their act together before they get married, what makes us think they're gonna have their act together after they get married? So in many ways, it is the single life that prepares you for the married life. And that brings us to the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. We're in a book called Corinthians. If you want to look on with us, 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a letter that a man by the name of Paul wrote to a group of believers in a city called Corinth. I've been to Corinth many times. And there were a lot of questions that these Christians were asking Paul uh, about so many things. And the reason why they were asking Paul Paul was kind of like the Dr. Phil of Corinth. He founded the church. He had led many of these people to Christ. He had baptized many of these people. He had discipled many of these people. So that Paul was kind of their go-to guy. And so they're, they're, they're asking Paul a lot of questions, and they've been asking him about sex, and they've been asking him about marriage. And now Paul is going to address this whole issue about marriage and sex and being single. So all I'm going to do today, I'm not going to come up with anything original. This is what I, not what I'm saying. I'm just going to follow Paul's lead and what Paul has to say about living the single life. We're in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, let me just say before I get started, you may be single and you have no intention of getting married, at least right now. You're enjoying the single lifestyle. You're perfectly content. It may be that you have been married or you were married at one time, but you've either been through a divorce or maybe you've lost a spouse through death and you're not interested in getting married either. You're just fine with being single. That's, that's okay. What we're going to see today is the single life, and this is important for you to hear, the single life is not a subpar life and the married life is not necessarily the supreme life. Both are good, both are godly, each has its advantages and each has its disadvantages. Because I'll tell you what I'm seeing today. You've got single people who are kind of in confusion about a lot of things, and you've got married people who are in conflict about a lot of things. So you've got single people who are depressed because they're not married, and you've got married people who are depressed because they are married. So it, you know, it kind of evens out. Now, here's, there is one big difference. Marriage is a choice. Singleness is not. As a matter of fact, more and more people are beginning to choose singleness over marriage. Did you know that adults are just as likely today to be single as they are 
to be married. You talk about a shift in our culture. At the turn of the 20th century, go back to 1900. At the turn of the 20th century, you ready for this? 95% of the adult population was married. 95 out of 100 singles over, 200, over 100 years ago were married. Now, the life expectancy back then was only 47 years. So most people got married when they were teenagers, like my mother. My mother got married when she was 16 years old. Today, 45% of adults have never married. Or they're divorced, they're widowed, or they're separated. One out of four adults have never gotten married. The average age of marriage today for a male is 29 years, highest in our history. The average age for marriage for a female today, 27 years, the highest in our history, never been higher. So for all of you who are single or you're raising someone who's single or you've got friends who are single, I want you to listen today to this tremendous godly advice on how to be successfully single. And by the way, if you're not single, I want us today to learn how to see and how to appreciate those who are single. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to learn three things today. And you've got a little, I think, in your worship guide, if you want to take notes, you can kind of fill in the blanks there on the back. All right, number one, we should appreciate singleness as a proper life. We should appreciate singleness as a proper life. Now, let me just remind you, if you know very much about the Old Testament, you're going to recognize some names I'm going to throw out. Some of the greatest prophets that have ever lived are in the Old Testament. And maybe you've heard of Elijah or Elisha. Maybe you've heard about Daniel. Maybe you've heard about Jeremiah. Or you can go over to the New Testament, and there are two names that stand out. Maybe you've heard about a man named Jesus. And maybe you've heard about a man named Paul. Six people that all belong in God's hall of fame. What do you think they have in common? Somebody tell me. Yeah, they were all single. Every single, every single one of them were single. Now, what does that tell you? Well, there's nothing wrong with being single. Matter of fact, there's a lot of things right about being single. So Paul begins by saying in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25, he says, now about virgins, he's talking about people, of course, who've never married and, and, and hopefully have never had sex. I have no command from the Lord. In other words, he said, there's nothing that Jesus specifically said about this, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, Paul says, I think I've proven you, you can trust what I say. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. I don't know exactly what crisis he was talking about, but evidently there was a lot of people going on in society just like we have today. And Paul said, you know, if you're single, I think it's a good idea you just stay single. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. Now, Paul's advice is very simple, okay? If you're married, stay married. If you're single, okay to be single. If you're not married, just don't be looking so hard to get married. Now, I want to remind you, Jesus was never married. As a matter of fact, Jesus was always constantly changing perceptions. I mean, think about it. Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry. He lived to be 33 years of age. Do you understand how unusual it was for any man that day and age to be single? No man was single. Oh, you couldn't hardly find, you couldn't find a single man with a microscope, with a Geiger counter. If you were 30, you were expected to be married. Being a single woman was not unusual. That could happen. But being a single man was very, very rare. And oh, by the way, just to, as, while we're talking about singleness, in eternity... 
we're all going to be forever single. Because in God's plan, marriage is an earthly-only institution. In fact, in response to a question about marriage in heaven, Jesus said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So I know that God has a blessing for single people, and single people are blessed to be single because we're going to be that way for all eternity. Now, Paul even says in verse 26, to those who have never married, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. So we're not told that the single life is necessarily the best life, but, we're, but, but what we are told is it's a good life. It's not necessarily the best life. It's not necessarily the better life. But he said, you know, it is a good life. It is a proper life. And, and I'm going to be honest. You're single here. I'm going to make a confession. I'm the first one that will tell you that, that those of us who have been married or we are married, we have done a disservice to single people both in the church and outside the church. And I'm just being honest. I'm, I'm confessing uh, a shortcoming on my part. But, you know, you know, think about this. We have a tendency to look down at people who are single, still do. Uh, if, if we see a, 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 a woman who's never been married, we even have a derogatory term for that woman. We, what do we call her? An old maid. You know, we call her an old maid. I got news for you. She's far from being an old maid. She may be a very smart woman. She may know what she's doing. I mean, how many times have you ever seen a beautiful woman or a very handsome man who maybe are in their 30s or their 40s and they've never been married and, and you just can't help yourself? You think to yourself, I wonder what's wrong with him. I wonder what's wrong with her. I wonder why they have never married. When the fact of the matter is, there's probably nothing at all wrong with them. As a matter of fact, at this point in their life, it may be there would be something wrong with them if they were married. So Paul said, look, being single is a good life. So here's a word to those of you who are single and you're not married, okay? I, this I can tell you. It is better to be single and remain single and die single than to marry the wrong person. Just take my word for that, okay? I love what the comedian, the late comedian Rodney Dangerfield said. I love this. Rodney Dangerfield said, my wife and I were deliriously happy for 25 years, and then we met. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, there's nothing wrong with being single and wanting to marry. So Paul says in verse 27, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. But are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. In other words, he says singleness, is, it, it's a calling. Some people have the calling to be single. Some people don't. Being single doesn't make you any more spiritual than being married. And being married doesn't make you any more spiritual or any more godly than if you were, than if you were single. Uh, and it doesn't, listen, when you get married, you don't become more godly than you were before you were married. You can be a godly single. You can be a godly married person. And the truth of the matter is, some people have been chosen by the Lord to be single. They just, they just have. Now, I suspect that God calls most people to be married. But I want to make it plain. God doesn't call all people to be married. 
I, there are some people I've met that we've got them in this church. They have the calling to be single and they are wonderful people. They're involved in our church. They're living extremely wonderful lives. It is a proper life. And so I wanna encourage you and I really want you to hear this. If you're single and you're not married, even if you're dying to get married, but for some reason you're not married, you don't need to be embarrassed about it. You don't need to be ashamed of it. You don't need to feel like you're a fifth wheel because you're not. As a matter of fact, Paul even gives a caution to people who are single, but they're thinking about getting married. Listen to what he says. He says, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But he gives a warning. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, I've been married for 42 years. Trust me. When you get married, you double your pleasure, but you also double your problems because now you got two people involved. Uh, Teresa heard me the first time I, I said that, this is back, I think we're in Mississippi, and I said, you know, now if you get married, you're going to double your pleasure, you're going to double your problems. We're on the car driving, we're going back home, and she said, you know what? She said, you know what you said about doubling your pleasure and doubling your problems? I said, Yeah. She said, can I, can I just tell you, be honest with you? I said, sure. She said, when I married you, I doubled my pleasure, but I quadrupled my problems. <laughs> you know what I said to her? I said, that's why you got me a half price. Now, <laughs> I was a blue light special. But, but the point, listen, the Paul that, point make, that, that Paul is making, and I want all of us to remember is, we should appreciate singleness as a proper life. It's okay to be single. You can be in the center of God's will and be single. You can be mightily used of the Lord and be single. That's the first thing I want you to hear. Second thing, we should celebrate singleness as a productive life. We should appreciate it as a proper life. It's a good thing. But he said we should celebrate singleness as a productive life. Now, Paul says, let me give you some advantages to being a single person. And there are several. Listen to this. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, what Paul says, frankly, is indisputable. He says one of the advantages of being single is you can give 100% of your time and 100% of your energy and 100% of your thinking and 100% of your resources totally to serving the Lord. You're not hindered by anything else. You're not worried about anything else. And I can tell you because I've traveled the world and I, have I can tell you now, some of the most effective missionaries we have on the mission field are single. I mean, they, they, because and, and, and they don't have to worry about bringing kids or getting kids and getting them adapted to a different culture. They don't have to worry about educating. They don't have to worry about a wife that may not be happy in a foreign land or a husband that may not be happy in a foreign land. They, they can just go because they're just single. They don't have to worry about that. I mean, common sense tells you if you've got to pick up and you've got to move to a foreign country, it's just easier to do it if you don't have a spouse. It's easier if you don't have 
a child. Now, again, let me emphasize, does that mean that a married man and a married woman with children can't be effective missionaries? No, because they're on the other hand, some of the best missionaries we have, and most of our missionaries are married. That's not what I am saying. I'm just simply saying what Paul is saying, stating the obvious. It is easier in some ways to serve the Lord when you're single than when you're married due to the troubles and the problems and the pressures with ministry. I mean, think about, to give you an example, you're single, you lose your job, but you're not married. Well, at least you don't have to go to bed now wondering, how am I gonna feed my wife? How am I gonna feed my kids? How, how am I gonna support my family? Because if you're single, you don't have the expenses of someone who's married. I remember before I got married, Dad was my, my dad was my best man. And uh, so we were talking the day before the wedding and just, you know, kind of spitballing about some things. And I said, Dad, I said, now's a good time to ask you. I said, is it really true that two can live cheaper than one? And Dad looked at me, I know he smiled and he said, yeah, if one doesn't eat. Now, <laughs> I got a news flash for you. The only bargain you'll ever find in marriage financially is the marriage license. The price goes up after that. Okay, I mean, it just does. Because you learn almost after the honeymoon is over, man, I, I've got a spouse I've got to please. I've got a spouse I want to, to be happy. And then the kids come along and now you say, man, I, I've got a family to feed. And then you finally get to the point where you can buy a house and you say, now I've got a home to maintain. And everything kind of ramps up. And oh, by the way, it's hard enough, think about this, when you're, when you're single, it's hard enough to live with yourself because you're not perfect. It's hard enough to live with you, much less with other people who are also imperfect, which by the way, while I'm in the territory, let me just say this. That's why a lot of people get so disappointed and they get so disillusioned early in a marriage because some people think if I just married her, if I just marry him, now I'm going to be happy. All of my emotional needs will be met and all of my physical needs will be met and all of my spiritual needs will be met. Let me tell you something. Marriage was never intended to resolve every personal problem, every emotional problem, and every spiritual difficulty that you face. Because sometimes marriage subtracts, sometimes marriage adds, sometimes marriage divides, sometimes marriage multiplies, sometimes marriage can work positively, and sometimes marriage can work negatively. But a single person can be single-minded. But a married person has to be double-minded. For 42 years, I've never been able to make a decision just for me. I've had to make my decisions taking my wife into consideration, taking my kids into consideration. Now, today, there are some things I have to decide. I've got to take my grandchildren into consideration. So a married person has to be concerned not just about pleasing the Lord, but about pleasing the spouse. You know, uh, I tell young pastors this, and I'm sure this will make sense to you. I can't even preach if I'm not right with Teresa. I only tried it once. I never tried again. I was miserable. Can't do it. You know, we, so we have a one. Listen, you'd love my house on Saturday night. We don't fight on Saturdays. Now, Sunday night, fair game. Saturday night, off limits. Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, we don't fight much anymore, but I'm just simply saying that, you know, when you're, when you're married, you've got somebody else you've got to think about. And what Paul is simply saying is, if you're married, don't feel guilty about being married, but if you're single, don't feel guilty about being single. 
there's enough pleasure in both lives and enough problems in both lives to make sure that both the married life and the single life are equal in value. Again, though, there's one difference. Remember, if you're single, you've got a choice to be married, not to be married. Choice is always optional, it's never mandatory. But you don't have to choose to be married. On the other hand, if you're married, with only maybe two exceptions, you don't have a choice. We've already said you are duty-bound by God to stay married, to work out problems in your marriage until death parts you. So if you're single, listen, if you're single, whether you're looking or not, at this time in your life, be single-minded in serving the Lord. Allow your single life to be the most productive life it can possibly be because you've got time married people don't have. You've got resources people don't have. You've got an attention span people don't have. To give yourself more to service, to your church, to missions, extracurricular activities that frankly, married people with children simply do not have. So if you're single and you're saying, but I really want to be married. Okay, I get that and God can handle that. In the meantime, don't waste all of your time trying to look for someone when you may find the wrong person. Use your time, leverage your singleness to be as productive as you possibly can. So we need to appreciate singleness as a proper life. It's a good thing. We need to celebrate singleness as a productive life. Some of the most productive times in your life for the Lord can be when you're single. But then Paul says one last thing. We should demonstrate singleness as a pure life. We should demonstrate singleness as a pure life. Now, let me just stop and kind of prepare you. So far, everything I've said, ho-hum, that's great. No, nothing real controversial there. But now we're about to enter into some deep waters. And now the paddling is going to get a lot harder. Because you talk about being politically incorrect in the 21st century. What Paul is about to say now is just about as politically incorrect as you can imagine. You're about to read a passage that maybe as much as any other passage in the Bible will make 20-somethings and 30-somethings and 40-somethings and 50-somethings who are single roll their eyes. You've got to be kidding me. This is the 21st century, dude. Are you really, really trying to put this over on me? So listen to what he says. Verse 36. If anyone's worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, that is, things are getting too hot and too heavy. And if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. Now, I'm going to read this again. Your passions are too strong. He feels like he ought. Let's say those two words. Say it real loud. Say it if you even don't like it. All right, to marry. There you go. Thank you. He should do as he wants. He's not sinning. That is under that umbrella. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, translation, his hormones, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right 
and he who does not marry her does better. Now, it just doesn't get much plainer than that. Paul is as plain as plain can be. He says, if you are single, try to remain single if you can. But if you don't have the calling of singleness, you cannot control your sexual desire. The hormones are bubbling over. Then you should go all the way. Nope, it's not what he said. Then you should make sure you're using contraceptives. Nope, not what he said. Then you should do whatever feels good. Nope, not what he says. Then you should unleash your sexual passion. Nope, not what he says. Then you should hook up and shack up. Nope, not what he says. That's what Hollywood says. That's what the sexual movement has said. That's what the secular culture says. That's what the universities say. Now here Paul says, if anyone's worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. Paul says, here's your solution. You've been dating. The hormones are raging. You feel you love him. You feel she loves you. You feel you love her. The love, I mean, love is in the air. Get married. Get married. Now, that whole passage is foreign to our culture because, remember, Paul is addressing this to virgins, which is, of course, obtained by sexual purity. And, oh, by the way, while I'm in this territory, guys, sexual purity is as much for the male as it is for the female. We, we have certain derogatory terms that we use for females who are not virgins. But, you know, when guys are not virgins, well, they're just playboys. It's just the alpha male in them. They're the stallion in the bunch. No, one's just as wrong for one as it is for the other. The satirical magazine called The Door suggests, I love this, this is a satire, unmarried couples that live together should take the following vows. I, John, take you married to be my cohabitant, to have sex with and to share bills with. I'll be around while things are good, but I probably won't be if things get tough. If you should get a cold, I'll run to the drugstore for some medicine. If you get sick to the point where you can no longer meet my needs, then I'll have to move on. Forsaking many others, I'll be more or less faithful to you for as long as it feels good to me. If we should break up, it doesn't mean this wasn't special for me. I commit to live with you for as long as this works out. That's the culture. 
that's becoming the norm. We have a generation today that says, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You see, we now know that a big part of the problem with marriage is not how they end, but how often they begin. Now, let me just kind of give you some statistics just to keep in mind. Half of all marriages in America now start with cohabitation, okay? So half of the people that get married have already hooked up and shacked up before they're locked up, okay? Problem is, eight couples, of eight couples who cohabit, four will never get married. And of the four that do married, three will end in divorce and will leave each other within five years. Now, you don't get told that by Hollywood. You don't see that in the movies. You know, they live happily ever after. All contraire. No, they don't. Four out of eight living together won't be living together much longer. I won't be living together forever. And of the four who finally decide, yeah, we're going to get married, 75% are done within five years. So, According to the Barna Group, 65% of American adults believe that cohabitation is acceptable. I'm in the minority. I'm a, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm the lone wolf crying in the wilderness here, right? Okay. Two out of every three people in this country today, sure, hook it up, shack it up, no problem. The attitude today is, you know, kick the tires. Take her for a sex drive first. And the problem is that one out of four people who do finally get married, only one out of four will make it. Those who cohabit before marriage, and by the way, especially before an engagement or commitment, by the way, those who say, Yo, let's, let's, let's try that, let's move in first. Those who, who do that before marriage tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. Now, let me just say this. We're going to wrap this up. If you, feel, if you have a strong sex drive, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. Matter of fact, <clears throat> Paul even calls this sex drive. Remember what he calls it? He calls it a fire. And I can tell you, we've all, males especially, we, we men, we've been there. You know, when the puberty hit, kicks in and, and, and you hit about, you know, 17, 18, 19 years of age. I mean, I, I've been exactly where you are. And you didn't start the fire. God started the fire. Now, you may think you're nothing but a hunk of hunk of burning love. But that fire is to be controlled because it can burn your life down. Because the one that gave you that sex drive can give you the power to control that sex drive and not unleash that fire until it's burning where it's supposed to burn, and that is in the fireplace of marriage. So I want to close with just some practical advice for those of you who are single. Okay, something I've already said. If you want to be married to the right person, and I would assume that's what you want. If you want to be married to the right person and you want to find the right person, you've got to be the right person first. It all starts with you. It doesn't start with them. It doesn't start with him or her. It starts with you. You want to, be, you want to find the right person, be married to the right person, you've got to be the right person first. You ought to be so right with God and so in tune with God that whoever you're thinking about marrying one day, let me tell you, this is important. 
If you're right with God and you really are right with God and you're really in tune with God and the person you want to marry is right with God and they're really in tune with God, here's what will happen. They will be spiritually attracted to you before they're physically attracted to you. And their spiritual attraction to you will be far stronger than their physical attraction to you. The other part of that advice also stands. If you are the right person, you say, well, pastor, how do I know if I'm the right person or not? Oh, that's easy. Here's how you know you're the right person or not. You ready? This will be worth writing down if you're single. If you are the right person, you'll look for the right person. If you are the right person, you will look for the right person. And finally, when you do marry, do it for the right purpose. You need to look in the mirror before you look for a mate when you think you found that mate and be able to look in that mirror and say, I know that marrying this person and this person marrying me will bring honor and glory to God. If you can't look in the mirror before you get married and say that, you shouldn't get married. I know that marrying this person and this person marrying me, I know will bring honor and glory to God. Now, the last thing I want to say, which is true for married and single people, is this. The most important relationship of all relationships by far is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is more precious and more permanent than any other relationship you will ever have. So for all of us married or single, whether you're married or single, it doesn't matter. Never forget, the only reason that everyone on this planet can spend eternity with God, the only reason, is because the greatest single person who ever lived died on a cross and came back from the grave so we could be married to God forever. Let's pray.